Here they come! Hello and welcome to episode 165 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host Eric Moore and today I'm joined by Andrew Glazebrook to discuss the opening of Blade Runner. Greetings from the humongous, the Lord humongous, the warrior of the wasteland. So here we are with our first episode of 2022 uh, to return to my favourite film, which incredibly has its 40th anniversary this year. Does that make you feel old, Andrew? 40 years? Yeah, it makes me feel very old. In fact, I was looking at a list earlier on to to put up on my um, Instagram of movies that obviously got released the same year, things like, well, The Thing and Tron and when you look at that list you think why did that time go <laughs> uh, I can't believe it I got to me I mean like the 90s are still like 10 years away or something yeah, like that yeah. you know 40 years this is going to be so depressing every time they say it's an anniversary of any film now I was a bloody projectionist and I was showing it this is going to be a depressing next few years I think yeah I mean we're going to have what the, the the 50th anniversary of Star Wars, aren't we coming down the line? Yeah. That's, <laughs> and, you know, you think, well, yeah, that's just crazy. It is, it is. So, I mean, you know, 40 years ago, so you must have been about four when you saw Blade Runner, by my reckoning. No. Uh, I'm being kind there. That's a nice... Well, that's, uh, that's all right. You know. <laughs> uh, was it been about 16? Yeah, 15 or 16 when it got released. So was it a cinema release for you? Did you see it? Yeah, um, I can't really remember much about it. In fact, I remember probably more seeing it on VHS for some reason. I did see it at the cinema. Um, I can't even remember who I went with. Uh, certainly wasn't any of the family. It must have just been somebody I knew from school or college right. or something. Uh, but yeah, um, it would have been the, uh, the audience I went to see it at. But yeah, it's... I don't know. I don't. It maybe just didn't leave an impression on me at the time. I think it was maybe a film I got into at a later date. I don't know. I've got very vague memories of it, really. Uh, but I do remember it, like seeing it on VHS and watching it numerous times on there. So, mm. uh, yeah, because this is one of the films. I mean, um, I remember we only had it like a week or two. It didn't do very well, and you know, yeah, this is yeah. one of the films that came out and you know famously people have said that you know it didn't do well because everybody was expecting oh it's a Harrison Ford film therefore it's got to be hand solo um, because it's science fiction and and were rather disappointed and you didn't get that word of mouth did you mm, yeah so maybe it was just a case of you know I've seen it the once and nobody else was talking about it and it, that's maybe why it sort of slipped out my memory in a way and then I caught up with it later on on VHS right Right. And, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I fell in love with it, you know, the very first time I saw it. You know, I was just entranced by it. You know, this opening that we're going to talk about today. I mean, mm. what a spectacular opening that is. That sucks you right in. And I just fell in love with the world that I was seeing up on the screen. Yeah. I mean, I remember, obviously, same as you, looking at the fantastic films and the Starlog and the Starburst and things like that and liking what I was seeing in terms of the special effects and stuff. Um but yeah, I just don't think the story maybe grabbed me at the time. Um, but then I, I, I think it was through through a friend I met at college because he was a big fan of it, and I think he was telling me a lot more about it than I'd realised. So when I eventually got to see it on VHS, um, probably even at his house, you know, he he told me a lot more about the the background to it. Then I got the Cinefix, um maybe it was a few years after as well. I picked that up. Not at the time, but from a science fiction convention, and that's really what then got me interested in it. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, d- a question I'm going to ask anybody when we talk about Blade Runner is, for you, is it with narration or without narration? Uh, that's a difficult one. That I'd, I'd probably say now without, in a way. Um, because I always kind of knew from various bits and pieces that it wasn't meant to have the narration, even before obviously that was then removed. So I kind of, you know, understood why, you know, it was added, but then also appreciated the fact that it was never meant to be on. Um, and I think, I think maybe, I think once you know what the narration is, then maybe you can watch it without because you understand then what's actually going on because you remember the narration. Especially if you've watched it so many times with the narration, mm. you can watch it without because you can hear in your head what Harrison Ford is Yeah, I think that's that's, that's the thing. Yeah, especially like when uh, Gaff first approaches, um, you know, Deckard at the uh, noodle bar and stuff like that, you remember what was being said. So it's almost like it's... uh, it's underlying dialogue, isn't it? That's filling in the blanks. Yeah. But it just seems odd if you don't think about that. When I watch it without the uh, narration, you've just got scenes of like, yeah, just before the noodle bar, you know, Deckard looking up at the sky where he mm. was talking about his ex-wife and stuff like that. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it just seems odd to actually have silence where, yeah. you know, that's where the narration was inserted, you know? Yeah. Well, what we're talking about today is before any narration or anything, aren't we? So yeah. this is the opening of, of Blade Runner. And of course, we've got this opening scroll, mm-hmm. uh, the sadly rather dated now dating of the film. Yeah. Um, that, you know, by now we would have had, because it says early in the 21st century, you yeah. know, uh, robot design was advanced to the Nexus thing. So, yeah, by 2019, everyone's buggered off to the stars, basically, haven't they? Yeah. It always makes me wonder when they're doing these sorts of movies, you know, what stopped Ridley from maybe saying it was like 2100, mm. because then that would have still put it into the future, you know. Um, you do you do occasionally get movies that have obviously, uh, you know, still got time before we catch up with them, but um, yeah, there's certainly ones which have long since been in terms of the history and gone, um, mm. and Blade Runner's now one of them, you know, where yeah. you I, I do wonder if any executives sort of said, well, you know, 2019, that's not that far off. It's only mm. like, you know, less than 40 years away. 
Uh, do you really want to do that? I mean, you know, another good example of it was, you know, Jerry Anderson's UFO, and they set that in 1980. But the reason they set that in 1980 was when they were making UFO. You know, all the talk was, yeah, we're going to have moon bases soon. You know, the yeah, moon landings yeah. had just happened. It was a very optimistic time, wasn't it, for space exploration, and the future yeah. will be on the moon. So you can understand that there. But by the time they made this, it is, yeah, it, it, it's a bit too soon. Yeah, I think like sticking another hundred years on top of it probably would have worked fine. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm. All right, well, the scene we're going to talk about today, uh, let's talk about it. I mean, after we have that scroll upwards, uh, we get this very wide shot, very high up. Yeah. Um, what do you think of this establishing shot? And I'm thinking of the flames in particular. What do you think? Because I've never liked these flames. It's just something about it doesn't seem quite right to me. Yeah, I mean, it's a, obviously an iconic shot, isn't it? Um, I, I know what you mean about the flames. I think, you know, this is just going into the actual effects of the thing that they were essentially projected, weren't there, I think, onto some oh. bits of uh, white card as, a, as an element. Um, it's not like the actual chimneys themselves are belching out real flames on the miniature. Um, so they are like an optical effect in a way. Mm. Uh, and yeah, there was always just something a little bit about them uh, that made them look a little bit not as bright as they probably should have been. Um, you know, I live in the area where uh, was inspired by Blade Runner, and even from my parents' house on a night time, you could look over into the sky some nights, and you could see the sky aglow with the actual flames from the works, and they were way off in the distance. You know, you could actually see the actual flames, but you could see the the, the amount that the sky was actually being lit up by them. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I just don't think they probably seem as bright as they should should be, really. It is. It's just something about it. I mean, obviously, what, you know, when the film first came out and I'm watching it, I'm thinking, oh, I don't know about that. I had it down that it was some sort of like a composite shot. But, no, you're yeah. absolutely right. On the physically attached to the miniatures yeah. was a piece of white card with the mm. image projected onto it. But, yeah. yeah, it just didn't seem like it was part of the actual model work but of course it was but yeah yeah what do you think about the lightning as well this big streak of blue lightning that comes down well again it's it's an optical effect it's very much of that time period i mean you know um i suppose looking back in hindsight these things are easy to pick you know out but uh, at the time you know i thought it looked great especially you know when i was younger um i still think it holds up you know as like probably one of the greatest openings Mm. Um, you know, it, it, there's still a lot about it which still thoroughly works on so many levels. Um, I, I mean, shortly we'll talk about how they achieved it and yeah. the fact that it, it, it was all physically there. Yeah. This is a camera passing over a miniature landscape. Mm. You know, it, it is incredibly impressive. The yeah. music is fabulous. Absolutely yeah. fabulous. I mean, that, that's another thing that I fell in love with with this film mm. was, you know, I, to me, it's seamless. You know, the music is, is part of the film as much as the visuals. You know, you yeah. put on the soundtrack and you're in the film, even though you're not looking at it, aren't you? If anything, I think one of the things that kind of like, it's the it's the... I suppose the geography of the scene, it, it this appears to be kind of more industrial works and things like that, where when they actually watch the, the movie as the movie, um, we're more in a, in a city. It's not like we're actually tracking over a cityscape at this point. It seems more like we're tracking over industry. Yeah. 
Um, and I, th- I think that's why you never see this lightning again. You never see these flames again. And, you know, yeah. of course, in, in 2049, uh, you know, special effects had advanced. So when, you know, Kay's spinner is flying over the city, if you look down, you can see all the billboards and that. But, mm. they, of course, they didn't have the technology to do that back then, yeah. did they? It's it's like uh, maybe it's the city's meant to be more like behind the Tyrell buildings, which we're going to sort of see in a minute, you know. Um, and this is the industry on the other side of those buildings. But um, yeah, the, there's no um, cohesion between like this and what we see later on. This is just like purely the opening, and that's all you will see of it is the opening. Yeah, this um, is the Hades landscape. It was it was yeah. nicknamed, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, in, in the distance, you say about the Tyrell building, you've got these two pyramids. You can see it in the haze in the distance. Mm. Uh, and then we get this massive close eyeball. It's Holden's eyeball, isn't it? You know, yeah. um, which is like the segue between the shot we've just seen and the next one, which is a closer one of the pyramids with their searchlights going up into the sky with all this smoke. Because, of yeah. course, Ridley Scott loved the smoke, didn't he? Mm, yeah. I always thought it was odd that there was more than one Tyrell building. You know, if you just had the one pyramid right in the bang in the middle. Um, but it's the fact that there's actually two Tyrell buildings identical. Um, I'd, I'd never really noticed it back in the cinema days. Yeah. Um, I, I never really noticed it. Mm. But yeah, why you chose to have two buildings the same? It's not like there's a main Tyrell building and say two or three smaller ones similar design around it. It's just the two identical buildings of the same proportion. Um, you know, which one's Tyrell meant to be in, or is he just you know does he go between them? On <laughs> that is a good point. Why why go to the trouble of making two? Why, yeah, one would have sufficed. I mean, shortly we're going to see the the most incredible detail work. You know, yeah. on on the pyramid. But if you're making two, you're, make, you're doubling your work, aren't you? Yeah, like you said, it, it was always a bit odd that, because I think just one uh, is imposing and two is just, I don't know, it, it does seem a bit odd. I mean, it, it works well in the sequence, but again, logically, I don't know whether there was a reason why there was I don't two know. buildings. I don't know, but that's a lot of man hours, because yeah. you know when we cut to the bigger model of the pyramid, the mass of tiny lights that are mm. absolutely all over it, that's a lot of man hours, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, these things look gigantic, almost like little cities in their own right, aren't they, in a way, you know? It's like a mega block from Judge Dredd, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, yeah. 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 So we have the eyeball again, and again, Mm. that's another cut, because then we have a slow pan up the pyramid Yeah. um, with with this incredible model work. Um, And we cut to inside, we have our first shot of hold, and then we go back outside, and we kind of like, pan up more and zoom in towards the windows yeah with this fantastic detail work you know this it this floats our boats doesn't it yeah. yours oh, and mine yeah. um you just sent me an image earlier on tonight about you know um adam savage's little wigget yeah that, uh, the, what that, we call what he calls the universal greebly yes yeah. yeah i've had that that's i, I think it's the Hazawaga um the, the 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 big mortar gun you know the yeah. big german world war Two gun on on rail tracks yeah, yeah and and that's like the holy grail if you want to buy a kit for tons of detail i remember adam savage pointing that out on his youtube channel that this is the universal greebly yes yeah yeah, yeah. apparently you know you kind of like stick about well you stick whatever's in the box to essentially to a piece of plastic you do a silicon mold and then you knock out as many in resin as you possibly can yep <laughs> And, and it works saying, fine. It's there, isn't it? 
Oh, and again, he, he said it's on everything, Battlestar Galactica and, you know, the Millennium Falcon. It's, it's on all of the, the kits. I don't know if Martin Bauer ever used it. I can't remember Martin Bauer using it because I don't th- think he had access to that kit, yeah. you know. Um, so I, I can't remember him ever putting that on, on anything from Space 1999 or on is the Nostromo. Is it the Morsa Carl? That's the one. Yeah, the Morsa Carl, yeah. Yeah, and that's a, it, it is an expensive kit now if you look at it. You know, I think you're talking about 120 quid for that kit. Yeah, I bought one for, uh, quite a few years ago, and that was about 70 at the yeah. time. Yeah, I know? think it is pricey. That's the problem when you do studio recreations of models, something you yeah. can just go down to your local department store and buy for pennies back in the 70s. Mm. Nah, not anymore. Yeah. All right, so that's our sequence. Our sequence is this flyover over the Hades landscape, eventually ending up in the Tyrell building. And, and you've said earlier, yeah, this opening was... Uh, uh, Ridley Scott was inspired by two things... Um, one was your neck of the woods and yeah. also when he used to, in the seventies, uh, um, in New York, he used to fly by helicopter into the center of, uh, um, uh, New York and land on the old Pan Am building right. and just seeing, you know, New York at night, just a mass of lights. Yeah. Um, but yours is far more in keeping with what we see on the screen here with these massive chimney stacks, isn't it? Yeah. Well, he apparently lived in Billingham, which is the, in this area. There's Middlesbrough, there's Stockton, there's Billingham, there's Redcar, and places like that. They're all in the same Teesside area. And um, he lived in Billingham, and there you've got Billingham Ice. It was ICI at the time, Imperial Chemical Industries. Um, and there was ICI Billingham, as ICI Wilton, which is a bit further over. And then you had Haverton Hill as well, which is the works. And yeah, I mean, you know, at one point, um, especially in its heyday, you could drive down the main road into the area and that's what you could see you know the the works were much more used then and they were burning off various gases and stuff i mean you still get it now occasionally but uh back then i mean you know this area was known for its industry and its works i see i've long since gone from right. the area but um you know yeah i mean it was especially when you used to drive up to um uh, there was a, a main road, what we used to call a trunk road, which led up to Redcar, which is on the coast. And again, that was ICI Wilton. And that looked amazing in the dark, you know, all of the lights and all of the smoke and all of the flames. Um, so you can see exactly where it came from. And I think, you know, even when I probably didn't even know this, I thought, this is like Teesside, you know. <laughs> um, and then I know a friend of mine um, who was um, from Iceland, his... Um, his partner got a job at the university here and she was from Germany and she travelled on train through the area on an evening. And I think when I first uh, met this uh, this guy, um, we went for a drink once and he said, oh yeah, um, his, his girlfriend, his partner had said, you know, it's like travelling through the landscape of Blade Runner. You know, she told <laughs> him, you know. Uh, so even she'd spotted that and she didn't even know the connections. So, wow, yeah. wow. Excellent stuff. All right, okay, so... Um, yeah, if if we talk about how they achieved this this flyover, you know mm. all, all this, Andrew. So yeah. I'm sorry to bore you, but uh, yeah, it, it's basically a table, isn't it? Eighteen feet wide by thirteen feet deep. 
Yeah, um, it's, it's essentially like a huge sort of, well, a lot of it's a false perspective miniature, isn't it? So, yeah, well, the table itself was plexiglass, wasn't it? Mm. So they could light it from underneath. Yeah. And it was going to be false perspective. That was the original idea. But then they realised that Ridley Scott wanted to film it from multiple angles. And you mm. can't do that with false perspective because, you know, mm. if you step off to one side, you blow the illusion. So they changed it to diminishing perspective which yeah, is yeah. similar but it means that you can actually do it from different angles can't you yeah it's kind of the miniatures built almost like a like a wedge isn't it like a pie shape in a way mm. yes mm. yeah that's a good way of putting it yes yeah. yeah and they use brass etch which you know you know if, if you uh brass etch stuff you can get the most amazing incredibly detailed uh pieces can't you yeah yeah especially like framework and girded work and things like that and yeah. that's what they were doing that and they were uh, so you had these silhouettes of buildings basically laid out and staggered randomly and they the size ranged from like eight inches at the front to about half an inch at the back and they were just basically hot glued down onto this plexiglass table mm. uh the front row though had extra detail on didn't it so so as to not give the game away that they were basically cutouts yeah i mean um, so, some some of the stuff at the front is um like vac form kit part uh, you know with kits on and various model bits but then they're, they're interspersed aren't they? when you actually sort of see the, the the photograph there's so many different layers of detail um there's, there's the brass etching then there's kits then there's vac form that you know it's it, it's multi-layered isn't it all the way down yeah and they had three hero towers Mm. which were the ones that had the most intricate detail, and they were the ones near the front. But they were heavily weathered down as well. I saw somewhere that they used, actually used coffee granules and mixed that into the paint to get you a real, you, you know, yeah. like dippled effect. Yeah, and they were just essentially brought in at the side on like C-clamps, weren't they? Just clamped right. into, yep. into the shot, really, just wherever they needed those to be. But uh, like you said, you know, none of them were actually practically spouting any kind of uh, flame out the top. It, you, they would have needed to be much bigger to get the scale. Yep. Um, yep. And um, alongside all that, of course, you've got all your fiber optic strands. Um, mm -hmm. I saw that it was seven miles worth of fiber optics, yeah. which was added, uh, all added and went down under the table. They had like 30 light sources under that table. And, and I've got good photos of these whacking great big fans that you had to have on to, you know, keep everything cool because the plexiglass was starting to melt oh, because yeah. these lamps were so hot. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's the story about uh, wasn't the Tyrell building didn't actually catch fire at one point during one of the motion yes. control shots <laughs> just because of the heat from the lamps, yeah. Yep, yep. And, um, yeah, w w what you said, yeah, the flames are being projected onto white foam board mm. um, and some of the footage of these flames was pulled from the end of a film called Zabraski Point. Yeah. Um, which were isolated via rotoscoping and then they were projected and yeah. other flame effects. They actually filmed that in the EEG, that's an entertainment effects group's uh, car park at yeah. night. Yeah. yeah. It's funny as well because uh, literally like the following year you had the same technique with the projections used on things like Return of the Jedi, the explosions over things like the Star Destroyer. Um, mm -hmm. yep. you know, the, the, they, they were using the same technique, projecting actual explosions on the foam board um, you know, physically there in front of the model. Um, so, you know, there was, a, there was a similar thing of people using the same techniques at the time. Um, I mean, I suppose it's a good idea that you've actually got the explosion, the, the flames physically in the same model, uh, because obviously it's tracking then to the same yeah. thing. You, you're not trying to track it, um, you know, frame at a time. 
Um, it's physically there. Uh, go on. I'll I was going to say EEG. Yeah. Uh, the, Ender the, the, yeah, entertainment effects group is the word. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, one of the first jobs they did was to design and construct the Tyrell building. We'll move on to the Tyrell building. Mm. Um, but the script was quite vague as to what its shape was or even if it was in the center of the city or not. And yeah. to this day, no, nobody really knows who came up with the idea of it being a pyramid. Nobody's actually put their hand up and said, yeah, categorically, it was me or it was this person, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was Tom, Tom Cranham was given the job of designing it once they had realized uh, we'll go the pyramid way. And he yeah. had like 14 years experience working with Erwin with Allen on, on all his productions. And it was Douglas Trumbull who said a good starting off point would be the Mayan pyramids because yeah. he liked the fact that you've got these massive squat pyramids with a, a staircase running up the center with mm. plinths every so often for statues to go on. And um, it was Tom who suggested to Doug, you know, to keep the plinths and actually have where the plinths would have been to be like sort of landing pads yeah. for the spinners and certain vehicles. Mm. Mm. These these are sort of um, done as well, very much like models of the time where they've only detailed them from the sides. You're going to actually yeah. see them from as well. So if you you know it's literally uh, the front face and one of the side faces are the only sides which you've got details, and the back of it's completely just bare. Uh, there's no point in detail. We never see any shots from those angles. So why would you build it? You know. But also time was a factor. They had less than a month. Uh, before principal photography was due to start to actually yeah. you know uh, to build this thing and you know that was a worry and I know that they created a map painting in case the model wouldn't be done in time yeah and uh, our old friend Mark Stetson steps in at this point and he did a phone core mock-up mm. uh, I think it was about like third scale of, of what it was meant to be but uh, um, you know just for reference for sorting out camera angles and stuff but then yeah. they, they considered, no, that's big enough. We're going to go yeah. with it at this scale. So the actual model they made is actually a third or, yeah, yeah, just a third of the size it was originally going to be. Yeah. And then obviously in the shots preceding this, when we do see the uh, Tyrell building on the landscape, they use photographic cutouts of the model in the distance. Yep. Um, you know, again, just mounted on a foam board just so we can see the shape of these things. But, um, yeah, I don't know whether they had any holes punched in for LEDs. I don't think you can even see the lift. You can just see the shape of them at no, that point. It's just that hazy shape, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, the lights for the buttresses that you've got on, on there to save time of, you know, drilling out all the holes for the fibre optics, uh, they were made out of hollow light boxes. Yeah. Uh, which were detailed by Chris Ross, who uh, covered it over with random window patterns on high contrast film. And, yeah. uh, and then two separate layers of intricate brass etch, you know, mm. um, and then you just light it from within yet again. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's essentially floodlighting it isn't it it said it would have been a nightmare to fill without um fiber optic cables you'd have been there, probably still been there now <laughs> yes yeah and and that's why you know the sides of the pyramid they were they were cast in clear polyester resin uh detailed on the outside with styrene um mm. and very few kit parts uh by bill george another famous name from model making yeah. And uh, one, once constructed, they put a 2K lamp inside. I don't know if it was a Xenon lamp. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a Xenon. And uh, John Vidor, he spent a week scraping the paint off. 
in window shapes. They, yeah. they gave him a little uh, chisel, didn't they? Like a window-shaped chisel, and he spent a whole week. There's a great photo of him wearing headphones, and I'd need to wear headphones if you're yeah. spending a week just scraping the paint off to make windows on this thing. It just shows you, doesn't it, like now, um, you know, the, the, in terms of what we've got in terms of LEDs and uh, LED strip lights and things like that, you know, if they had them back then... But like you said, they're using floodlights and, you know, you probably only could keep it on for so long before things start melting. You probably ought to keep an eye on that. You'd start um, getting a smell, wouldn't you? You'd get that oh, burning yeah. plastic smell. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so there's so much more advantage to doing this. You know, if you were doing it now, there'd be quicker techniques, 3D printing techniques to print these things out, laser cutting techniques to print these things out, you know. Um, save a lot of time but uh, yeah I mean a lot of work went into it and like you said it was, it was they were still getting rushed as well you know mm. I was going to say you know th- those days are gone now what you were just saying there but when they made 2049 mm. there was a conscious decision to build physical models didn't they now they might have used 3d printing to print out you know maybe the sides of a building but some of those buildings were like eight feet tall weren't they yeah, I mean, I've not seen the sequel. I had really no interest in seeing it, but I've watched the documentary about the miniature work at Wetter, and yeah, they they were using laser uh, cutters to cut whole sw- swathes of fronts of buildings with uh, where the windows would be, and then cut the windows and drop them all in. I mean, it was all hand painted, hand detailed, hand weathered, but it just saved them a hell of a lot of time. So the craftsmanship is still there, okay? It- yeah. Hopefully, you know, health and safety-wise, it's a lot safer now because you haven't got the risk of a, a model catching fire or or melting and giving off toxic fumes. But yeah, like, like you say, yeah, you 3D print stuff out, but there is that's a good word, craftsmanship. You know, the craftsmanship mm. is still there. You've got to physically assemble it, then you've got to yeah. paint it, then you've got to weather it, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, I see all sorts of people online... Um, you know, through Instagram and stuff like that, who are using 3D printers, who are using laser cutters and using modern techniques, which, you know, you'd have died for when we were young. Um, but they still have to do an awful lot of hand finishing. You know, it's not like they're just printing these things out, the hand weathered, hand painted, hand detailed, hand deckled. You know, um, you've still got to do all that yourself. And that's, you know, part of the, the craftsmanship. These are just tools to make things easier, aren't they? I suppose it was the same as when, you know, someone decided well we can pour silicon into something and make a mold and then we can just make a load of them at once yeah you know which is what we're doing on things like star wars you know like the death star surface was that you know well we'll make two or three basic patterns and then we'll mold them and then we can vac form or you know cast up as many as we want yeah um you know it's just another another tool in the, the box really yeah, I mean, you say Star Wars. I, I remember Lorne Peterson was saying about, yeah, well, if we had had 3D printing back in the day, of course we would have used it. You know, if it mm. makes if it makes the job easier and quicker, yeah, you know, of course we would use this stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, I've I do many bits and pieces where you know, if I had a 3D printer, I'd be thinking, I won't be sat here with a scalpel and a ruler chopping <laughs> all of these out by hand. I'd be printing these things out and getting on with what I need to do. Um. You know, I mean, okay, there's some people, model makers out there who who probably look like revel in the fact that every single detail has been hand-cut, hand-carved, hand-whatever, um, and make a big deal of it. But um, if you're doing it, especially with these guys, we're doing it for a movie, you know, time's money. They're not yes. gonna, you know, they want things done yesterday, not in a month's time when everything's been hand-cut. 
Well, again, back to Lorne Peterson, you know, he has said, you know, that he goes to conventions and somebody will bring along, like, you know, the escape pod from the beginning of Star Wars, and he'll mm. say the thing they made is far better than the one that they made because they didn't have time to put much finesse into it, you know? Yeah, because uh, it, it was a... It was a filming model. It was going to be used in a handful of shots. It goes, that's it, past the camera. No one's going to see all that detail either. And the clock's ticking, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you know, and, and I've, as I sent in one of the photographs I've sent to you, the Tyrell building, to me, it looks like in some of those shots that the underside of those sloping panels doesn't look like it's got any detail on. No. You know, I, th I think that's either just... Maybe it was just one of them situations, because them grabs I took there were from a 4K version off YouTube. Right. And, and you know, was it ever meant to be seen that? It was. That, that See, good? again, this is something else we keep talking about on this show. The films, you know, that we see so, so precisely now were never mm. designed to be... If you showed this film in 35mm, yeah. you know, that our, our projectors weren't that good at the cinema mm. I was in. They, the, the focus yeah. wasn't that good. You know, you've got old lenses, you've got judder in the gate, so the picture's not that steady either. Yeah. You know, um, I've always remember the Ray Harryhausen thing where he said, you know, somebody came up to him at a convention and says, if you pause Seventh Voyage of Sinbad at a certain point for one fraction, one twenty-fourth of a second, you can see the animation stand on one of the skeletons. Yeah. And he's like, but you were never supposed to see it this way. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. that, that's a mistake. You can't hold these films up to the scrutiny that we do now because that's not fair on the film, is it? No, and I say, you know, when, when you hear these stories like the, the taking films like Evil Dead and putting it in a 4K transfer, you think it was shot in 16mm. <laughs> was, it, was it ever meant to be seen in 4K? You know, I don't think so. Uh, even Aliens, you know, that you know the film stock for Aliens. It was pretty crappy quality film stock. That's why, you know, there, there, there is a, um, you know, a, a softness of focus in yeah. that film. You put it in 4K, it's going to look even worse. Mm. So I think that's the problem, um, you know, with a lot of them. I mean, it, it does, it is great, like, when you see the front of the Tyrell building on those grabs, and especially on the 4K resolution, you can literally spot kit parts mm. and see, uh, you know, the, the way it was painted and see it's quite rough in parts, but, you know, in another way, was it ever meant to be seen that good? No, it wasn't. No. And people back then wouldn't have noticed that. No one's going to go, oh, I can see that that's a kit part, you know. You just get taken in by the film, don't you? Yeah. The other yeah. thing, um, which, I mean, it wasn't until probably the advent of Blu-ray that you could actually definitely say, well, there's Holden stood looking out the window. Mm, yeah. Um, but then what is a, a, a big kind of blooper in a way is when you actually cut inside and you see where he stood in his eye line, he's not even looking out the window. No. He's, he, he's, the window's way too high. It's literally about another six foot above him. Yeah. No, so, it, was never, yeah, it wasn't meant to be scrutinized like this, was it? No, you know? no but, you know... When you look back at now, I mean, in a way, if I hadn't put the figure in the window, you would have thought, well, it doesn't. He's, is he just staring into space? Is that yeah. window just meant to be skylight above him? But uh, once yeah. you've got the figure in the window, which you can see on those uh, 4K stills and stuff, uh, you think, well, yeah, there he is. But you shouldn't really be able to see him no. because the window's way too it's high. It's not matching, is it? No. no. Um, the other thing, um, uh, the last bit of info is... I said it earlier, yeah, the, 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 this model uh, landscape was shot in a smoky environment. Yeah. Uh, partly because Ridley Scott liked doing that, didn't he? I mean, you know, yeah. um, that, you, you know, he said in Alien when the executive said, why is there, there's no smoking space, you know, when they were filming the Nostromo. And he's like, well, there is now, 
you know, and, um, you know, I mean, that's why they did it here, it, partly to suggest the pollution, but also to um, impart a better sense of scale and mass. Yeah. And that's Douglas Trumbull, because they'd learned that on Close Encounters, hadn't they? Mm, yeah, I mean, he was using a lot of the same techniques here, wasn't he, with the spinners, you know, with the um, adding the the smoke to make the lights look like the blooming and there's like yes. lens flares and stuff. So there's a lot of similar techniques again, coming through from those other movies. I mean, this was a constant learning process back then, wasn't it? You know, they were probably working on one movie and thinking, well, that works bloody well, didn't it? You know what I mean? Let's yeah. get on to the next film. Let's and do it on the next one. Yeah. Use it again. Or, or ILM will have seen it and thought, well, we'll have that on ET or we'll have that on, on the next movie, you know, so I think... Yeah, you, in- say, you say about the, the, the lights. I mean, yeah, the spinners in this scene where they fly towards the camera and away, they are like the little UFOs. Oh, yeah, def- definitely. Counters, I mean, they? you know, there's, there's so much like that in terms of similarity. Um, and like you said, it was just a constant thing. I mean, you know, did these guys phone each other up at weekends and say, what are you been working on? What techniques are you using? I mean, everything seems so easy now for these people in a lot of ways, but... Uh, Back then, it was literally, you know, they were inventing the technology and inventing these ideas. And, uh, you know, not saying that every single movie from that era has held up, but certain ones like Blade Runner and stuff like that really have. You know, they're still, I defy anybody, you know, whether, you know, they're in their teens or 20s, not to be impressed by the opening of that movie. It's a great mm-hmm. opening. Um, you know, there's nothing about it that's kind of like fake looking, really. No, as I say, and, and you know, this this influences what I'm going to give it out of 10. I mean, it is just that even though I know they're physically there, the flames, they don't mm. quite work for me. Yeah. And the, the blue flash of lightning uh, is, is slightly jarring. So that's mm. what's affecting my vote out of 10. Yeah. But before I say mine, what, what would you give it out of 10, Andrew? I'd probably give it a 9.5. Uh yeah, I mean, it is probably one of the best openings of any movie. Um, you know, there's a, there's a few flaws with that with it, but uh, yeah, I'll give it a nine and a half. That's exactly what I gave it. I was going to give it a ten, but I was thinking mm. about the flames and the lightning, and I dropped myself yeah. half a point. Yeah. So, yeah, nine and a half, yeah, that's what it's going to be. So, yeah, I'm, I'm oh, happy with nice. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, right. what I was just going to say to any of the listeners, um, does the... The, the fan-made movie, which was out a few years ago, called Slice of Life, um, which was made by these guys over in Europe, and um, they did a Blade Runner fan film. It, I, it's a bit wrong saying Blade Runner. It's, it's the Blade Runner world, but it's not yes. actually about Blade Runners. But um, they use a lot of the same techniques. You know, they build miniatures, they shot multiple passes, whether it be uh, fill lights, key lights, uh, for the smoke, for the screens but just used more modern technology to actually composite all of those sequences together. But, you know, they did an amazing job of replicating what Douglas Trumbull and that team did. Um, and I go back to that quite often and watch the, the, there's various YouTube documentaries about how they built the models and added little LEDs to them and, um, you know, just use, a, a, I mean, motion control. Now you can pick it up for your iPhone, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's well worth... Uh, watching Slice of Life. I'll put the link on Facebook. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they do have like a main page where they've got all of their uh, behind the scenes, whether it was the set building, the prop making, the filming the special effects and the movie as well. Um, but I say what's what's good about it is it's essentially a film that's set in the Blade Runner city, but it's not actually about Blade Runners. Mm, it's got yeah. like a separate sort of story in a way. 
it's a much better looking uh, project than this Black Lotus that's just come out, uh, you know. Yeah, I only seen a few clips of that and I didn't really like the look of it. So. No, 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 no. Stick with Slice of Life, yes. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you know, they seem like they put a lot of work into it and, um, you know, I say, I think, again, you'd sort of be hard pushed to sort of possibly spot the difference between some of the shots because some of them... And what was good about it as well is it wasn't like they were just trying to copy the exact shots and Blade Runner. They were, they were copying the style, but they, they were brand new shots. There was different parts of the city there was a bit down by the docks where there's like cranes and mm-hmm. you know um uh, which is uh like a nice sequence and there's like different things in the sky it's not just like the um the, the advertising blimp it was something else so that you know they, they put their own stamp on those effects as well but kept it within the the world of blade runner um but yeah i mean you know it, it's well worth looking at that um definitely because i mean you can see how influential it was yeah all right, folks. Well, yeah, once you're done listening to us, uh, go ahead and check that out. All right. All right. Okay. Well, happy new year, Andrew. Yeah. It's New yeah, Year's Eve new as, year. we, uh, yeah. as we as uh, we speak. So, uh, yep, yeah, I've got to talk to you in a minute about your first assignment of 2022. All right. All right. Okay. I think you're going to like it. All right. So uh, thanks, folks. Thanks, Andrew. And we'll see you soon. Okay. Bye.